0: Today on TuneFM I'm talking to Dr. Lewis Fitzgerald, a lecturer here at UNE in the School of Arts focusing on screen studies. He's worked extensively in film, television and theatre and has been nominated for awards as both an actor and a director. Now we're talking to Lewis today because of his experience in the screen media industry. As I'm sure some of you may be aware, there is an ongoing strike in America concerning writers and actors. SAG-AFTRA and WGA members are striking for a variety of reasons, including the need for a livable wage with inflation, contracts that reflect modern business models, protection from abusive uses of AI, sensible rules for self-taped auditions, and necessary funding for health, pension, and retirement plans. Today though we're talking more broadly about the screen media industry and how it works in Australia. So, just to get started, could you tell us a bit more about your background in screen media?
1: Hi, Ash, and uh, thanks for having me. I went to NIDA back in the pre-Jurassic period, and uh, after graduating, was fortunate to to work uh, early in an Australian feature film. My first film was with Bruce Beresford on his feature uh, *Breaker Morant*, and so my my sort of journey in film began there uh, and has continued. Uh, I'm I'm working right now on some television here in Sydney. Uh, So I've maintained my career in film and television alongside a much uh, later move into academia. I studied, uh, did a couple of degrees uh, right there where you are in in Armidale. And so I've had the uh, wonderful experience of being both a student and now a lecturer at the University of New England.
0: So can you tell us a bit about how the industry has changed in the last decade or so?
1: Well, Look, the obvious um, answer to that would be the advent of the streamers. That you would say has been the principal change. And just using Netflix as the example, that was established in 1997. And uh, they struggled initially to identify how to make themselves profitable. And indeed, in 2000, um, Reed Hastings tried to sell Netflix to Blockbuster for $50 million and was, of course, declined. And you know, we know what happened next. Um, Netflix Netflix forced Blockbuster into bankruptcy within 10 years. And that was incredibly significant because well, Blockbuster had been a multi-billion dollar business, 84,000 employees globally, many, many thousands of stores and so forth. And that was just a game changer. And um, you could kind of tell the Netflix story just by using one show as an example. I mean, if if um, well, we might forget, you know, that that House of Cards uh, first premiered on Netflix, when it was really only operating in a handful of territories. And nowadays, there's not even a handful in which Netflix does not operate, you know, um, I think China, Syria, North Korea, and Russia are the only places where you can't get Netflix. And, and that was just the start. Uh, because whilst Netflix was initially just a, a new form of distribution, really, it soon became a producer, it moved into production. And and the many other streamers which which followed it when when it could be seen that this was the new uh, the new way to go the new the, the many other streamers which followed did the same so you know in the year prior to covid i think netflix produced about 900 programs globally and of course the very next year first year covid they produced practically none so we saw that happen of course but australia i have to say was was briefly advantaged by by COVID, because we became seen as um, kind of a safe refuge in a kind of a way. There were production bubbles established on the Gold Coast and Byron Bay and and and, and elsewhere, and and so that worked for a little while. But something else that happened um, uh, with the advent of COVID was that film distributors realised that they could go straight to the streamers and and release widely in that way and cut a great many overheads that would otherwise be the case if you were going across the united states from 1400 screens and, and so forth that would cost you a lot of money you'd have to share your profits with the film distributors so you'll remember that films like um, die another day big tent pole films were held back during COVID for quite a long period of time in order to protect their impact upon a much delayed release. And in the meantime, other films were, went straight to the streamers. And so this new sort of wrinkle in the fabric of the universe of Hollywood um, became sort of apparent. And and now a great many films go uh, st- what we used to call, and somewhat disparagingly we used to call a film that was somehow less than, we would describe it as going straight to video. Well, now, of course, um, it's not less than at all to to go straight to Netflix and, indeed, Cannes, uh, the film festival there, has had to make allowance for the fact that uh, that uh, films may now be produced expecting to go straight to the streamers and so on. So the biggest change over the last decade would for sure be the streamers and the rapidity of that technological change is what's kind of at issue right now right here and in Hollywood.
0: Lewis, so how has the streaming industry... Um sort of taken would you say it's taken over in a sense are more films and tv shows being produced for these streaming companies
1: the short answer would be would be yes um here in australia well i guess i've touched on that already in the sense that we we see what the streams have meant to to distribution expectations and the the wide release of films uh, can now be accomplished by the press of a button rather than than uh, the employment of rafts of distributors uh, and so on, cinemas and whatnot. Um, so there's there's that issue. But as for the other ways in which they impact production, the thing would would be that they, as a as an emerging technology, as an emerging means of delivery, I should say, they post date legislation which protected uh, domestic production in in Australia and in of course other countries. And so we see that um, uh, Netflix and others can come to Australia and first of all, reap substantial profits by running their business in Australia whilst paying minimal tax. But secondly, they can then undertake to produce television here in Australia without necessarily being required to produce local content. They do produce a certain amount of local content, but it's nowhere near the 55% was required of broadcasters traditionally. And so they sort of post-date the legislation that was designed to protect Australian production uh, and that's what's being discussed now. How can we, how can we bring back uh, some of the requirements that are incumbent upon distributors? And you would say that the legacy broadcasters are merely a form of distributor in that sense, in that broadest definition of the term. So, how can we restore or recover some of that uh, responsibility to make local production in Canada, for example, uh, which has uh, is a useful comparison because, of course, it's an English-speaking country. Well, it's a bilingual country, but but it shares the English language and it shares that sense of runaway production in the United States. So it's on the one hand trying to attract production to the United States because that's a good thing. It employs lots of people. But on the other hand, it's trying to protect its own identity and it has a 45% quota incumbent on streamers. So 20% for local um, content does not seem much to ask. And indeed the government, um, the federal government here, uh, and I was at a meeting recently at which um, a federal minister Tony Burke was uh, was speaking, and and he uh, uh, reiterated his um, support for uh, for a streaming quota, uh, but that's not been legislated for yet. And so, whilst those details are being nailed down, we're still to sort of determine exactly where the where the chips may fall. But it is to be hoped that the fairly modest request of uh, or goal. of of the industry here of 20% would be responded to federally in legislative terms. And we look forward to seeing that in in 2024, by the middle of the year.
0: So how do we protect our local productions with streaming services? Is there like specific legislation? What would need to be introduced?
1: Well, I think I've just touched on that. That's the streaming quotas legislation, but we can see other examples in which we might also look to more specifically advantage uh, areas of production that have been forsaken, really. Children's television is the obvious one where the, where children's television production in this country has more or less collapsed. And that's a, a failure of policy uh, and, a, and a failure of support. And so we're making uh, all the right noises around. Diversity and inclusion. We're making all the right noises about uh, First Nations first and all those sorts of things that the new policy revive is, is a wonderful addition to the suite of policies the government's enacting. But the things that still fall through the cracks that could be uh, done uh, a good deal for would be children's television, which is a a unit of study no longer even taught at the University of New England, partly as a consequence of, of um, the collapse in local production, which had been its emphasis.
0: Which is so interesting because we're now seeing shows like Bluey, for example, uh, all the rage overseas to the point that there are Americans who have no idea what half of the words even mean.
1: You do get uh, the tremendous successes and that's to every, the, the great credit of, of the producers of that fine piece of programming. But um, uh, we're talking about uh, an outlier there. Uh, and, uh, it, it's not in, it's not subsequently sort of begetting a whole lot more production of that nature. It's a, it's a, a I hesitate to say a one-off. It's a tremendously successful one-off, but it doesn't represent an overall increase in the, in the total amount of production. And that's something that I think, uh, we should be trying to protect just as surely as we're protecting, uh, our entitlement to make, uh, adult forms of programming, be they drama or documentary, because what we're talking about there as Australian stories as as being specific and and relevant to Australian audiences. And um, that's the type of um, uh, cultural identity uh, aspect of the argument that can't be forgotten. And that's the principal reason for having quotas is that Australians do enjoy Australian stories and want to hear uh, of uh, and see themselves represented on the screens. Uh, And so um, it's not just Uh, jobs and economic consequences, but it's uh, social and cultural values as well.
0: So those are some of the current challenges that we're facing, but why is it so crucial that we address those challenges now?
1: Well, in the United States, the uh, strike action uh, by the WGA and SAG-AFTRA has uh, sort of uh, crystallised a discussion around the notion of residuals um residuals are a form of royalty payment that flow from production um after uh, an initial payment of wages uh, has been made much like a a recording artist um releases a song and and benefits from the the collection from the various radio stations on which it plays and so forth across the the lifetime of that that popular song so the, those collecting agencies uh that are as As was the case in the example of uh, the uh, streaming, the the quota system being sort of outmoded and outdated with the advent of streaming, so too uh, is the residuals collection. So there's no residuals paid by streamers, uh, and that means that uh, a a source of income that actors, writers, directors have relied upon, uh, and has and has often been argued compensates them for their relatively low wages is now lost to them. And that's uh, um, something that uh, the unions in the United States are fighting for quite rightly. And um, whilst it's sometimes difficult to sort of uh, come to grips with the idea that uh, very well remunerated major stars are appearing to uh, hold out their hands for more money, their their argument is not for themselves. Indeed, many of them in the recent days have contributed a million dollars each to a fighting fund to alleviate some of the distress the strike actions are causing or is causing on on lower paid workers in the film industry there uh, so um you you uh, are looking at a situation where the americans are wanting to argue the rights and entitlements of uh, actors writers and directors to receive residuals uh, and uh, ultimately australians will be the beneficiaries of that one would think uh, down the line when uh, an establishment uh, when a precedent has been established um At a future set of negotiations, uh, it could be imagined that similar arrangements would be expected to flow to to Australian uh, artists as well.
0: So do you foresee that these ongoing strikes are going to affect productions in Australia?
1: Well, they already have with the cancellation of some large um, uh, productions, large and and more modestly um, budgeted. So Mortal Kombat 2, uh, Apples Never Fall with, with Aaron Sam Neill, uh and um metropolis in melbourne are a couple that the public may be aware of that have been cancelled um or, or or delayed uh some some will resume production others may not occur now um we've kind of uh, uh seen other effects uh, the other effects would be i should explain that if you're a member of SAG-AFTRA, which stands for the Screen Actors Guild in American Film, Television, Radio Association. Um, if you're a member of that union, then you're obliged to honour the strike action that has been called. So if you're an Australian member of that union or a Kiwi uh, Australian such as Sam Neill, uh, then you're obliged to honour that as well. And so we saw even at the Logies, which one might think of as a somewhat more humble Australian celebration of local talent and, and production capacity, we saw small indications there of the effects when when Harriet Dyer and her partner who were being honored for Colin from Accounts uh, did not appear on the red carpet uh, in in solidarity with their American cousins so i think you're seeing uh, knock-on effects in that way um you'll see the you'll see effects also in terms of film festivals, where actors who might have come out to support the release of a film in a film festival will, will not do so while a strike is in place. Um, you've probably read a little about that in press already in relation to larger festivals elsewhere, but it could well affect festival planning in Australia. Uh, so there's those kinds of other ways in which the broader community of uh, of film and television production, distribution, exhibition are affected. I don't think that, that that the lack of American production in Australia will suddenly spur an uptick in domestic production. So I don't think that we'll see, shall we say, on the positive side, any necess- any influence in that regard, principally because of the uh, lag time, the pre-production time required to get something up uh, would not suggest that you would suddenly see stopgap production take place in order to sort of compensate. But I, I don't think. That the 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 strike will last forever, either because of the Californian economy, which I think is the fourth largest economy in the world, still um, is said to have been bulletproofed over the years by three industries: aerospace, um, IT, and and Hollywood. And Hollywood is a major major part of the health of the of the Californian economy. Nobody can afford for the strike to last forever, um, and uh, it will have an outcome. And I I'm confident that it will have an outcome. That we'll see some redress of the the problems around uh, around remuneration for residuals, that that being a principal one, and the second one, of course, being AI, which is difficult to know, but where where AI might lead us. But the implications and the reason I made that little brief history on on Netflix is because we saw how quickly Netflix absolutely disrupted uh, the global uh, apple cart of of um, both distribution and production it's it's now the blockbuster is now a dinosaur of the past and and we can and and as a multi-billion dollar company overturned so you can sort of see how well if that can happen in our recent memories then it can happen again in 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 the next 10 years span because it's only been that long ago so I think AI has the potential to be equally as disruptive, and that's why there's an urgency around discussions now before AI assumes many of the creative roles that we've always believed to be our, our own. And so there's a, there's a sense that in pursuit of uh, profit, we might forfeit some of our entitlement to our own creative processes, to those which expedite those processes. And there's never been, there's never been an invention, a technological invention, that has aided the actor For example, if I can speak with my actor's hat on momentarily, there's never been an, an invention that has aided the actor since the advent of sound. The, every every um, increase in uh, uh, technological cap- cap- capability within the film and television production sector has ultimately been about the, the speed and the efficiency with which productions may occur. They haven't been about creating more rehearsal time in order to get better and better performances, for example. So yes, the AI is at the second plank of of discussions in the United States, and we should watch that most closely. And and we're in that conversation even here on the university campus in ways in which chat GPT is affecting the creative outputs of, of students. And I want to just remark here that, that academic writing is, is a creative act and uh, it's important to remember that and to take the opportunity to seize your own uh, creative uh, opportunities. Uh, and indeed the other night at this meeting with uh, the federal arts minister tony burke he said not only is academic writing a a creative act but writing to your mp he said is a creative act and he encouraged people to do that to make the case uh, for interventions by government in the ways that they felt they needed to so i pass that on uh, Mm -hmm. because it is a tremendous uh, invitation there to, um, to assert the, the direction of Australian film and television and in wider cultural industries uh, as, as the uh, advent of AI looms.
0: Do you think that it's an issue that the federal and state governments are taking seriously? For arts and culture in Australia.
1: Oh, I think yes. I think I think it needs to be articulated to them, though. Uh, government um, does not pretend uh, to have all of the expertise. They look to uh, industry uh, and whatever industry that may be. They look to industry uh, for guidance, for for uh, deeper understandings, for uh, uh, robust research into possible outcomes. They look to their their electorate. They look to their um, voting public to guide them, and and. It's not enough that we abdicate responsibility for outcomes to the legislators. We have to put our hands up and uh, guide those legislators by presenting uh, our own, fa- our own, um, uh, cases for intervention in, in the ways in which we feel uh, may both protect, uh, our industries and allow the necessary profits from them to, to flow in the ways that we measure profit in this this country in in a social economic cultural terms in which we measure profit uh we've recently had a well-being budget and and so on and so we're starting to recognize that the cultural outputs of a, of a country are vitally important and and uh legislators can only respond um in a timely way if they are alerted quickly and promptly to threats as they may emerge and i want to say this that that when we talk about a resource rich country like australia we must not forget that storytelling stories are an inexhaustible resource and uh, the uh and 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 they are imagined by the most diverse uh, community of peoples uh, that 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 live with us in this country i mean we're, there's not one voice here there are a great great many and that inexhaustible resource of story can can drive tremendous profit, um, and so it, the creative sector. Uh, which has long been sort of not well understood, is actually a source of tremendous uh, bottom line advantage uh, in those various measures that I mentioned, and uh, it's, it's perhaps better understood in the life of this government than in the past. When, for example, the JobKeeper supplement, which, um, as as was remarked just the other evening in that meeting, if a, if a if an approach had been invented to try and um, disadvantage uh, uh, working artists, it could not have been better than JobKeeper, since the requirement that that a working uh, Creative person have uh, uh, be able to point to a year's employment with a single employer was a requirement and will. That just, uh, <laughs> that just doesn't happen because the creative worker can, can work for multiple employers a year and multiple employers in a single day from time to time. And this this is what we teach. This is what uh, academic literature has established. This is what is widely known in the communities of practice, that a portfolio is, career is what you can look forward to. And that's what we prepare students of the arts for. So the several ways in which we can act right now are to uh, act on things like writing in support of Of legislation that we see favours cultural outputs. We can talk about ways in which we might favour repeal legislation that discriminates against uh, one cohort of students over another, for example, such as the TN legislation, uh, which which, um, affected the cost of degrees for certain students in certain disciplines. So there are lots of ways in which by being creative yourselves and by choosing to write about the things that concern you, the things that you learn about and understand and are expert in. Governments want that information. They want to hear from their community, their their constituencies, and they want to create the policies and frameworks that the the public wants.
0: Thanks, Lewis. So just as a final follow-up, you know, we've seen that members, Australian members of SAG-AFTRA and the WGA have shown solidarity by not promoting films or productions they've worked on. Do you think that it's likely that Australian screen unions will go on strike as well? Or is it not affecting us to that extent here?
1: I don't think that will occur. I think, uh, as you've pointed out, Ash, the individual members who have duplicate memberships, as as many do, working on both sides of one ocean or another, um those members will respect the call for action from SAG-AFTRA or from the WDGA. But uh, industrially, we are not, the Writers Guild here or the MEAA here are not uh, presently engaged in negotiations around these sorts of matters. So there is a sense I would think of keeping one's powder dry here. I don't think that there'll be uh, industrial action of that of that kind, but I'll say that everybody here is watching with interest and stands in support of the action because uh, ultimately it will advantage those who work in environments in which residuals can and should be paid. And so whilst we've seen contractions in overseas production that will pass, production will return at some point in the future, and negotiations around Australian residual rights should flow as a natural conversation at a point to be fixed.
0: Thanks, Lewis. I just have one final question. So as someone who has an extensive background in the screen industry, what are your hopes for the future of screen media in Australia?
1: Well, I hope that it continues to be as inclusive and diverse as it is shaping up to be. And I hope that, um, because there are voices we're now beginning to hear that we haven't heard enough from, and that's devoutly to be wished. I also hope that we can Continue to enjoy the support of governments, and I mean that at all levels. There are three levels of government in this country, and there's ways in which each lef- level of government can support uh, the creative industries more broadly, and screen and uh, television, film and television production in particular. But it's hard to know uh, what to hope for. What I would hope for is robust Australian storytelling on what screens and by what means those stories are delivered. Uh, that's a crystal ball I haven't got, uh, but I. I uh, For as long as we have television screens, I'm here foreshadowing, uh, I don't know, uh, wraparound glasses and uh, micro-dosing of LSD or something whilst we're all <laughs> watching uh, something, uh, you know, that's perhaps an implant. None of it's too far-fetched. Science fiction gives us uh, the right to imagine anything. But I would want to just see uh, a place for, uh, for robust Australian storytelling across a range of disciplines. Uh, documentary, drama, kids TV, uh, and that those rights be protected and uh, and future generations continue to have those benefits.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you for coming on to talk to us today. It's been really enlightening and it's great to have a perspective from someone who actually works in the industry and has that experience.
1: My pleasure, Ash. Thanks very much for having me.
0: This interview was produced by Tune FM at the University of New England in Armidale, New South Wales on Unwon Lands. To hear more, tune in live at 106.9 TuneFM or check out our website tunefm.net. You're listening as always to 106.9 TuneFM, the home of UNE's student-powered radio.